In 2020, one of the world's largest car battery makers filed for bankruptcy and gave up its former plant in Greer, South Carolina. There's not much left of the old plant, but there's an invisible legacy it left behind. To make its batteries, the company used lead, an element that can wreak havoc on the human body. Inside the plant, employees were exposed to levels of lead well above the federal limit record showed. Lead seeped into the soil and around the plant, and at times, clouds of lead dust would flow into the air toward nearby neighborhoods. I'm Emily Williams, this is Understand South Carolina, and today we'll hear from reporter Stephen Hobbs about his investigation into this plant's toxic legacy. My name is Stephen Hobbs, and I'm on the public service and watchdog team here at the Post and Courier, which is kind of our investigative reporting team. Back in about the early months of the pandemic, I was looking for kind of a longer-term story to, to do and to work on. And so I started just calling around, seeing what maybe officials like attorneys or other people were kind of working on or what was of interest to them. And I started asking around a little bit, and one person I talked to mentioned that there was this plant up in Greer, which is kind of in between Greenville and Spartanburg, and that there were some issues related to lead exposure of workers and of people who live nearby. And so I started to kind of look at the plan and found some lawsuits and other things. And as the months went on, there were other stories and other projects that I was working on, but I just kept kind of chipping away and looking more into what was going on or what happened at this plant. And I just kept kind of getting interested and wanting to find out more. So the battery plant opened in the early 1960s, and it was started by a division of this one company called General Battery and Ceramic Corporation, and they made lead-acid car batteries. So, so lead and acid were the major components that were there. And the kind of the name of the owner changed, but General Battery owned the plant for a couple more decades until um, 1987 when a company called Exide got interested in General Battery and was looking to kind of expand its business. And so it purchased uh, the General Battery Company and became the owner of the Greer plant. So Exide owned the plant, ran it, and made batteries there from 1987 to 1996 was when they stopped making batteries there. For kind of in the many years after, the, the actual plant structure was there. And then in 2015, they, they tore down the building. And so now that's really all that's left is just kind of a, a concrete slab, really, and some other places where they used to have like an employee parking lot and other things. But there's not really many signs of kind of what the plant was or what it used to look like. During his reporting process, Stephen did dozens of interviews with former workers and people who lived near the plant. So I was very fortunate, even though that the plant was operating more than 20 years ago, to be able to talk to people who worked there and also who people who live nearby. And what I think was striking about it for me as I was talking to these people was the memories of the plant were very strong in their mind, whether it was maybe what it was like to, to live nearby and see it, or maybe things that they were smelling that they thought were from the plant, or just what, what it was like for the people who used to work there. One of the things that people remember was that, you know, they might smell acid, kind of like a 
burning smell maybe in their nose even before they got, say, inside the plant. Or they sometimes might see some sort of kind of haze outside and then they would walk in and then they would really smell that. So one of the things was that smell. The other thing was that there would also be lead dust kind of sometimes in the air. And there were uh, precautions that they were taking where people would wear respirators uh, to protect you know themselves from, from having the lead dust in their mouth and nose. And there was this kind of, the, the, the plant had a system that would suck up lead dust to try to kind of remove it from the work areas. But what happened was people would be wearing these respirators, but then there would be these pots that could be 800 degrees or higher that were melting lead in this building. And so it was very hot. So people would talk about, you know, they're sweating and their clothes are soaked and you have this respirator on your face, but it's moving around because you're sweating and it's hard to keep on. So that was, it was just very, I think, difficult sometimes to always protect yourself. And, and why it's really important is lead is a very problematic element and a hazardous element. And especially if, if, you know, it's happening all the time, especially hazardous for children, but it is for adults. And so there were all these precautions that were in place that the federal government had required to make sure workers who are in lead environments are protected but even so, it's it's hard to it was hard I think for workers to say be protected fully from lead. You kind of had to do the best that you could. You're supposed to shower at the end of the day to get as much lead dust as you could off you. But it was just I think hard to completely protect yourself from lead in that environment. So Tammy Winkler worked at the plant in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and her job was wrapping plates in plastic. And, and plates are were used in batteries. They are they're made out of lead and I think other kind of elements, but but they're these kind of grids. They look like waffle kind of shapes. And, and those grids are then filled with this kind of gritty paste, which is also made out of lead. And, and those are kind of, those plates are key elements inside of batteries. So she was running a machine that was kind of doing wrapping plastic around those. It, it, it was not a good place to work. You made good money. And that's what happened to people is they got in there, they made good money, they had to make good money and to survive in the world. And that's what they did. After Tammy got started, the amount of lead in, in her blood and body rose up and got to kind of a high level. And one of the protections that was in place at the time was that workplaces, you know, that that were had lead and, and used lead were supposed to monitor the blood of employees to make sure that they were drawing the blood to check for lead. So this was part of a regular process that was supposed to be happening. And what she found out was when her lead levels got high, she was moved temporarily to another job, which was another protection that was in place to make sure that that if their the amount of lead in their body got high, that it would have a chance to kind of go down before they were in you know this job that was really exposing them to lead. In her case, though, she was sweeping lead dust off the floor, which ended up exposing her, I think, to more lead. Whatever they told me to do is what I'd done. So... Of course, I swept the floor, which I wasn't supposed to be in any lead, but 
but I was. So the amount of lead kind of in employees' bodies was monitored through regular blood testing that was required as part of kind of federal rules. And so there was this system in place where workers were supposed to kind of be aware of what was going on with with the amount of lead in their body, but it, it wasn't always working, I think, as it was designed as supposed to be. I'm a firm believer in we have to have economy. We have to be up and running, but um, we got to do it as safe as we can for our kids and anybody who works in it mm-hmm. because uh, otherwise we are uh, not doing nothing but hurting us. Mm-hmm. Was the company ever penalized for not fully complying with the federal government's rules, again, these kind of safety precautions put in place for workers who were dealing with with lead. So state inspectors from South Carolina's kind of workplace safety agency that was enforcing federal laws came and and looked at the plan in 1994. There had been inspectors there before and inspections, but this was kind of a, a critical one because the inspection found some really serious issues. They found that you know, some workers were being exposed to lead more than 30 times kind of the amount of lead that they were supposed to have kind of in the workplace around them. Um, and they found issues with the blood testing program and, and other things. And so those officials felt like it was a very serious thing that they were finding. And in some of the documents that I found that there was a recommendation by a, an official with the agency to kind of penalize Exide with a willful violation or multiple willful violations saying that they were kind of willfully not complying with the rules in place. That didn't end up happening. They got kind of some less severe penalties and, and violations and the amount of the, the fine was eventually negotiated down. So it got to just actually just a little bit over $23,000 was kind of the final penalty that that Exide was supposed to pay for some of these issues. We'll be right back with more after this quick message. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barry Hawes, a reporter from the Post and Courier. Working as a local reporter, I found that we can cover national stories in a way that reporters who come in from New York or DC or Atlanta simply cannot. We've lived in the community. We have contacts in the community. We've raised children here. We own houses here. We can bring perspectives that somebody coming in from the outside simply cannot. When stories come up, we know who to contact to find out what's going on. We understand the impact that it has on people who live here because we live here as well. That's why the local perspective that we provide is so important. Learn more at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. So on either side of the plant, there were two different communities. There was a um, subdivision of homes that was on one side and a trailer park that was on the other. And so even before Exide took over the plant and started making batteries there in 1987, the amount of lead kind of in the soil directly around the plant and in some areas nearby kind of got the attention of people who were living there and also the State Department of Health and Environmental Control. The amount of lead that was directly around the plant kind of in, you know, immediately next to it had some very severe levels of lead that that were very unnatural, abnormal. 
So the State Department of Health and Environmental Control, or, or DHEC, was concerned about the amount of lead that they found in the, in the soil near the plant. They also were concerned about people who live nearby. And so there was an effort in the late 1980s where officials were interested in doing kind of blood lead testing of, of those people who live nearby, or at least of some people who live nearby, right? So there was, there was the blood lead monitoring of the people who worked in the plant, but they wanted additional testing outside of the plant to see how people were doing. But ultimately that that ended up not really happening until 1994. When blood testing was eventually done on the people who lived around the plant, the results raised concern, especially for children who had high levels of lead. Young children are particularly vulnerable to its toxic effects, and public health officials now say there is no safe amount of lead in a child's body. The hard thing about lead exposure and really lead exposure for young children is that it it can impact the development of the brain. And so I think it can be hard to know what impacts really happened or how someone's life kind of changed from lead exposure. But in talking to people who lived nearby, especially as young children, I think it raised a lot of questions. So a lot of people would say, oh, I, you know, I struggled in school or I had this health ailment. I don't know if it's related to that, but it's possible that it could be, and they may ultimately never know. One of the the people I spoke with who who grew up next to the plant as a young child was Curtis Wilkie, and he struggled in school and and said he he was picked on. And what I found out by going through records was he had very kind of serious amounts of lead exposure as a young child, and lead exposure at the amount that he had has been shown to affect things like school performance and and learning. And so we don't know if it was the challenges that he had are directly related to it or, you know, how much role, if any, it had in it. But I think it just, it raises those questions and it, it you just don't know. And, and at least for Curtis and his sake, he is currently actually serving time in prison. And he believes that you know, the exposure that he experienced kind of helped contribute to getting him on this path that ultimately led him to be incarcerated for 25 years. Along with having concerns about lead that had seeped into the soil, the State Department of Health and Environmental Control had worries about lead in the air around the plant. Some of the more significant documents that I came across were related to the State Health Department looking at the amount of lead in the air around the plant. So there was federal law that required, you know, lead to be under a certain amount in the air. The thing about that law, though, was it would average the amount of lead that was in the air and and coming from a plant over a three-month period. But what one of this air quality officials found was that the amount of lead that was coming from the plant was kind of spiking to really high amounts. They were finding because they had air monitors nearby because there was this concern about lead exposure. And and why that was significant was that seemed to correspond or it did correspond with days that the company was bringing in kind of a lead dust and powder. They were having it delivered to the plant. And so on these days that this this lead powder was being delivered to the plant, which was used to just to make more batteries, they were finding these spikes in the amount of lead that was in the air 
near the trailer park where these you know young people and, and many other people were living. When Exide filed for bankruptcy in 2020, it threatened to abandon the Greer site and more than a dozen others across the country. So one of the things that I think was interesting to me and I learned through this process and is maybe a takeaway is the fact that bankruptcy law allows companies to abandon or or get rid of properties, walk away from properties that still have pollution, uh, that still may be contaminated. And that is something that happened in this case where Exide threatened to do that. And eventually kind of the state and federal government settled with the company to allow them to kind of walk away the site, but give some money. But they really had kind of an upper hand in the process because they were in a sense able to walk away from the site and threaten that they would walk away from the site and and just kind of abandon it. There's this kind of um, conflict between environmental law and bankruptcy law that this case really kind of showcases. One of the challenges of this story was that the company that owned the factory technically no longer exists. So in 2020, Exide filed for bankruptcy and and sold off its business in the Americas. And this private investment firm came in and and purchased nearly all of that business and started a new company that also makes batteries. And so I, I contacted a spokesperson for that new company and, and they declined to comment. And then that spokesperson directed me to another company that's that has a headquarters in Europe named Exide Technologies. And so when I contacted them, they said, you know, we are not affiliated with this former owner of the Greer factory, even though we have this similar name. So it became a challenge to, to talk with people affiliated with the company now or to figure out kind of what the current status of things are now. But also we made efforts to contact people who were, say, plant managers at the time or, or in, in environmental jobs with the company. And also spoke with the former CEO of Exide, who was the CEO when the Greer plant was making batteries from 87, 1987 to 1996. When I spoke with that former CEO, his name is Arthur Hawkins, he said he wasn't aware of kind of the employee blood lead testing issues or the lead exposure lawsuits filed by you know people who lived by the plant. In your reporting, you went through 10,000 pages of records related to the plant. We've talked about some of those documents that you found, but were there any others that really revealed some new details or were, you know, critical to being able to report the story? I think from a reporting standpoint, what was really kind of enjoyable but also difficult about it was that there were a lot of different sources of records And so there were records that the State Department of Health and Environmental Control had. There were records that were found in court files. There were records with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. There were records with the Environmental Protection Agency. There were also records with the National Archives because there were lawsuits that were filed. Because some of these cases were so old, there were times when it felt like I was really on a hunt trying to find where these records were. There were records in, in bankruptcy court. There were times where I found names in those records of people to talk to. So that was great. Or there were certain details, even if it's just one detail, like when someone lived at a property 
what a certain lead level was, uh, what a certain blood lead level was of a worker or someone who lived nearby. And so each time I got one of those documents, there might be only one detail, but the benefit is if you have time to kind of keep collecting more documents, those details really start to add up. So there have been some dramatic shifts in Greer in the last few decades. It's, it's, it's really a growing city, and it's, it's a growing area in our state. And one of the things that has happened is this land that, they, that the plant used to be on and some land nearby that is vacant is, is desirable because there's an opportunity to potentially develop it. So at the same time that there is an interest in, in developing this land, there also are concerns from residents who live nearby or people who are just familiar with it. One is you know, traffic or, or changes to an area, but also definitely people have concerns about contamination and say, what's some development on that land? What, what is still left in the soil that hasn't fully been cleaned up? All right, that's all for today. You can find a link to Stephen's story in today's show notes. I highly recommend you give this one a read. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for this podcast, email us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or find us on Twitter at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a different news story from our state.